Welcome to Sober Stories, a podcast dedicated to the connection and change that comes from really great storytelling. We believe that stories are a massively transformational medium. When we can see ourselves in someone's story, when we share our own story, that's when the good stuff happens. Here, we tell stories of folks all across the sober spectrum, infused with hope, honesty, inspiration, and probably a few sparkling water jokes. I'm your host, Beth Bone, and it is my greatest honor to be chief story steward around here. I combine my decade of experience working in the mental health field with my five plus years of sobriety to bring you candid conversations with spectacular guests, pulling back the curtain on what it really looks like to ditch the booze. We like to think that we're changing the way the world sees drinking one podcast episode at a time. Y'all ready? Happy Friday, my friends. We are back. I'm so excited to join you on this beautiful Friday as we head into the last few weeks of summer. First order of business, I've been working on something for you behind the scenes and the final touches are being put on her as we speak. One thing you'll hear us talk a lot about here is community. The importance of being connected with other folks who understand, who get this alcohol thing. We're building that for you and we've got a fun little wait list for you to hop into so you're the first to know when it goes live. Head over to wearesobersstories.com slash community to stay in the know. By joining the waitlist, you'll be able to not only get first access, but a few perks along the way. Uh, TBD there. (laughs) I have a really, really lovely conversation for you today. It's not usual or typical for me to get emotional in an episode, in a recording, uh, and even less so that I get emotional again while I'm editing, but that's just how great this interview is. Hunter Montgomery joins me on the pod to share his sober story, celebrating over 14 years of sobriety from opioid addiction and alcoholism. Hey, hopping in with a quick edit here. Hunter actually celebrates over 16 years of sobriety. Though Hunter's story is so different than my own and we both use really different language and frameworks to organize our sobriety, I was really amazed by how much we still have in common. We agreed that one thing about addiction is that it doesn't really play favorites. (laughs) It can happen to anyone. Hunter's kindness and inspiration made this really one of my favorite episodes to date and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. After you give today's episode a listen, tag us and Hunter and let us know what your biggest takeaway was. Here we go. All right, Sober Stories, I am so excited to bring a wonderful conversation to you today. I have Hunter Montgomery, as some of y'all may know from The Bachelorette. You'll have to correct me on which season that is. But Hunter, welcome to Sober Stories. Hello, Beth. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it was uh it was season 17. Um, 17. I, yes. Yes. Katie's Katie's season. Okay, Katie. Yeah, I couldn't remember. I should have done my due diligence there. Uh, they all kind of blend into one when you're somebody who's watched they every do. single season. Um, admittedly, I've already confessed to my fatal character flaw here uh, that I do watch The Bachelor religiously. <laughs> I can't square it with a lot of my personal beliefs and views, but you know, here we are. It's fine. But that's not why we are here to have this conversation. We are here to talk about you and your sober story. So I know we got a taste of it on the show. I know that you actually have been one of the more visible or or openly sober in recovery kind of people in the lifetime of the show and what we've seen. So I know we kind of have our assumptions and our ideas of you and your sober story, but I would love to hear from you. What brought you here today and hear your sober story? Yeah, absolutely. I think the most important uh, part of my story or the most, I think that the aspect that I would always want people to hear is that I didn't come from any sort of violent upbringing or I I didn't have, you know, things against me when I was a kid. I had probably too much as a kid. 
You know, I grew up in a pretty well-off family. You know, we didn't have the struggles. There was no divorce, no violence, no abuse. Went to great schools. And I think that's what's important to understand about addiction is that it doesn't have any sort of bias, right? So Mm -hmm. it will attack and make victims of any person, no matter um, how old or young, the color of your skin, how much money you have or don't have, if you're nice or you're Mm -hmm. mean. It is rampant and it it doesn't have any sort of bias. My my story is probably similar to a, a lot of folks, though, that kind of walk into the bear trap that is addiction. I played, mm-hmm. grew up in West Texas, played high school football, the whole Friday Night Lights thing. Um, that oh, was yeah. kind of, that was my life, right? And part of that was weightlifting and strength training and things like that. And I, I got injured at some point in the middle of my uh upbringing in in sports. And I remember getting prescribed to Vicodin and Mm. taking it for the very first time as prescribed. And just, I can just remember this feeling that I had when I took it. And it was like, Mm. I had never felt more comfortable and confident and exhilarating this, just this joy. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know at the time, like that it was because of that. Right. I just knew that, like, I took this medicine, it made me feel like a certain way. And, mm-hmm. you know, throughout my childhood, I was, I was kind of the fat kid. I was bigger kid. I was, <laughs> I kind of got, I got made fun of a lot for it, but I was also the guy that the way that I defended that and my mechanism for defense was if I made the joke about myself, if I was the class clown, mm-hmm. if I had self deprecating remarks, no yep. one else could do that to me. Right. And so while I was, uh, you know, overweight and kind of got poked fun of, I was also like, you know, I was a funny guy. I I had plenty of friends. I was a popular kid, but I never felt comfortable in my own skin. Mm. You know, I always needed someone else's approval and I always needed validation. And I think when I started taking drugs, when I felt when I was introduced to drugs and alcohol, I felt comfortable. I was Mm. able to be confident. I was able to talk to people better. And I think that's just such a huge theme in my story is that drugs and alcohol, they filled a hole for me and they made it to Mm -hmm. where I didn't have to feel the emotions that I felt and I didn't have to feel the pain that I felt. And it's, it's interesting as I've learned everything I've learned about addiction and the disease that is alcoholism and addiction, it's not even about the drugs and alcohol. You know, it's it's about this escapism and this um, this pain that I think a lot of addicts and alcoholics are are trying to cope with. And this is the the way that they self medicate, or at least for me, that's that's what it was mm-hmm. for me. And I think I started, I got into this is how I know that like biologically I'm an addict, right? I I remember taking hydrocodone or Vicodin as prescribed, and then it was months later when I was like. I was seeking it out. I was looking in my parents' mm-hmm. medicine cabinet to see if there was any more of this stuff. And then I would go to a house party and I would immediately go to mm-hmm. the parents' master bathroom and look for hydrocodone, you know, or look mm-hmm. for Vicodin. And that slowly turned into seeking it from other people, you know, and I, I think other addicts would probably be familiar with this, but I can remember being in you know, a sophomore in high school and seeing a girl on crutches in my calculus Mm. class and going and asking her, hey, like, did you get prescribed some medicine, some little white pills? Like, do you want to? And I I was prescribed Adderall when I was 
in high school. And I can mm. remember saying like, Hey, I'll give you some Adderall for some you know, hydrocodone. And mm-hmm. what I didn't realize is that I was, here I am like this straight A student, captain of the football team, had getting into the University of Texas at Austin, like had everything going for me. I was walking into the throes of an addiction. At that time, like my idea of an addict was like this gangster in a new era, straight mm. rim gangster baseball cap with baggy clothes yeah. that dr- that dealt PCP and meth on the streets. Like mm-hmm. I didn't really understand addiction. And so before I knew it, my body was was craving this stuff. I was actually like in a place where I had become accustomed socially to being on this and having a certain feeling. That's kind of when that like if you if you look at it from a scientific standpoint, like that phenomenon of craving, the mental obsession, those things, those parts of this disease started coming into play because I wasn't as happy when I didn't have it. And mm-hmm. I thought about how can I get it? I started kind of ruminating on that more and more. By the time I went to to college, I was fully addicted. Mm-hmm. And and in the meantime, you know, was the alcohol, right? So my story yeah. is really about opiate. Right. But in the midst of this, like when I even when I did or didn't have the opiates, I was I was in a fraternity at UT and I was mm-hmm. drinking copious amounts of alcohol and like it was nothing. Yeah. And I think like again, I was walking into the throes of alcoholism at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't know. I thought I was just having fun. You know, I thought that I was just doing this recreationally. And before I knew it, like I can remember a time waking up when if I didn't have, you know, 10 or 15 Vicodin mm-hmm. to take right away, I was sick. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I went from being this kid that had everything and was well on his way to a great life to really, and I know in the community, they don't, we don't, we shouldn't say terms like junkie, but like I was an addict. I was a full fledged whatever, whatever resonates with you. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I, I stopped going to class. I stopped socializing, started hanging out with dealers, started doing, started dealing on my own. And like before I knew it, you know, I was just in a place where everything revolved around the drugs. Everything mm. revolved around the drugs. And, you know, I had to come up with schemes on how to get high. And I don't love when I talk about my story, I don't necessarily love talking about all this part because yeah. I like talking about the solution. Um, but I do yeah. think it's important to, to realize, though, like the, the progressiveness of like where mm-hmm. I started and then how quickly, you know, by the time I was a, mm-hmm. a sophomore at, at UT, I was just, I was bad. Mm-hmm. I remember when I first got help, my friends, uh, guys from my fraternity were uh, loving enough to literally call my family and say like, mm-hmm. look, Hunter is going to, he's going to kill himself. Like he's, he's taken way too many drugs. He's, he's really bad. He needs help. And so I went to rehab and like for mm-hmm. me, rehab was just a way, the first trip was kind of just a way to get the fire off my ass. You know, it was, yeah. right. it was a way for me to figure out how to get out of this, but I didn't really understand what it was that I was actually in, right? Mm. I can remember being real miserable and thinking like, how am I ever going to get out of this? But I also thought, you know, when I was cleaning out my, for instance, cleaning out my fraternity room, I... I remember my dad like putting my parents were there and my dad like putting my bong in this box to throw away and I was like no that's an expensive <laughs> bong and my mom was like you don't get it like yeah you're not 
You're not doing. I drugs laugh anymore. because I I get it. I, not because it's funny. I laugh because I understand. No, I mean it is it is funny. Like that's that's how my yeah. brain was. There were so many reservations, right? And I yeah. looking back, like anytime you have reservations about recovery, it's not good, you know. Because like for mm. me, like I'm I'm a I'm a full fledged addict on the spectrum of sobriety, and for me, it's all or nothing just like everything else. And so like, I didn't realize that when I went to treatment, this meant I was never going to get high again. And this Mm. meant I was never going to have a drink again. And I think my first time around, that really threw me. I didn't understand that I was not a normal drinker. And I wanted to Mm. be a normal drinker. And I thought in my head, like, I'm never going to be able to have fun again. And I think that's a popular misconception. A lot of folks that are sober curious or or, or even might have a problem and know they do is that they're afraid that, like, they're going to live this life of boredom. And what am I going to do at my wedding when everyone's having champagne? Mm-hmm. And it's, I'm here to say, like, spoiler alert, but, like, spoiler that's alert. not the case. Like, it's, a, like, yeah. there's there's fun on the other side. There's there's such such a, a more exhilarating life than you could ever imagine. But so I, I relapsed. Right. I, I didn't do what the people told me to do. I didn't do what mm-hmm. they taught me. I didn't care about this as a disease and, and what it really mm-hmm. was. I just wanted the fire off my ass. So yeah, I, I relapsed within 60 days. I mean, you hear a lot about like when people relapse, how quickly like they fall back. And I yeah. mean, I, I remember like taking Vicodin for the first time after I'd gotten clean and only having to take like four or five pills and getting super high and thinking, oh, I got it made. Like, yeah, I'm not going to have to take a hundred pills a day. Like I'm not going to have right. to do all that. And literally within two weeks, I was back to taking 20 pills at a time. I mean, it was, mm. it was so quick and like the disease literally was waiting there for me. Yeah. And I think it was that second time around when things just got really bad. I couldn't, I couldn't, my body couldn't handle taking the Vicodin because I was taking too much Tylenol. So I moved to Oxy mm. and I couldn't afford the Oxy. So I moved to heroin and like, Mm-hmm. I just got really bad really quick. Mm-hmm. I I won't go too far into it, but I went through some stuff at, at one point. I came very close to going to prison and literally got out of this somehow. Um, and I, I, me, like it's a God thing. Like for me, mm-hmm. like I know it's a God thing, but I got out of this to essentially saved my life. And I can remember being in, in rehab the second time thinking I was going to go to go to prison. I walked into the treatment center and, you know, a typical addict, I was like, I'm going to detox myself. So I smuggled in a bunch of pills and then I mm-hmm. was like, no, I'm going to do this right, but I'm going to go out with a bang. And I took, you know, 32 hydrocodone. Mm-hmm. I OD ambulance came and got me that night. And I remember that was so that was 2007 on March 23rd, that next morning. And that morning, I really had a choice. And it was, I can either go back to Austin and live couch to couch until I die, or I can actually do this and, and give every single thing I have to this thing and actually get sober. I remember packing my bags and thinking, no. Nah, I'm not doing that. I'm going to get high. And like I had my bag yeah. packed. And then I think it was some, it was a, a mixture of my stubbornness and God <laughs> and like my competitive nature that was like, wait a second, like 
I'm not going to let this disease win. Like, this is bullshit. This disease isn't as powerful as me. Like, and also like all these people in AA and all these people at this rehab, like I'm going to prove them wrong. Like they, yeah. they're telling me that if I do this, I'll get sober. Well, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it exactly the way they say. I'm going to give it everything I have. And when I go out and when I relapse, I'm going to tell them all that they were wrong. Mm. And so like I march out of detox and I went to every single class and I went to every single meeting and I stayed in Kerrville, Texas at a halfway house. And I lived with eight grown men that were mm-hmm. questionably <laughs> yeah. not like not people yeah. I was used to, but at the same time, the most amazing people in the world, you know, and like yep. the great equalizer, as you said, I was truly, truly humbled, you know, like I, I was. I worked, I was a bagger at HEB. So here I am, this spoiled fraternity kid, like bagging groceries, living with eight men in a three bedroom house. And it was the happiest I'd ever been. Hmm. And I did exactly what they told me to do. And I went to a meeting every day and I did all the things. And I slowly realized that maybe they weren't wrong. You know, maybe, (laughs) maybe, maybe this program, which for me was AA and for other people it's not, but for me, it was AA, what was something that knocked me down and like taught me and helped me really have this like spiritual change, this psychic Mm. change that allowed me to understand I'm not a normal person in regards to mood altering substances. I think learning about the disease and learning Mm -hmm. about the science behind it for me was just as important as the rest of it. Because like I didn't, what I didn't understand, and I think what a lot of people don't understand is that like I have an allergy. And so the way that that works is like, let's say me and my girlfriend, we go out and we have dinner and she's allergic to whatever. She's allergic to shellfish. And so we go and we're at a fancy restaurant and I just tell them, hey, like we're going to have two of the specials and they don't even tell us what it is. I'm just like, "Ah, it looks good. Let's get two of the specials. And so we both eat and it has shellfish in it, but we don't know. And we both eat and like, I'm going to eat that. And I'm like, God, this is so good. And I'm going to go on about my night and everything's going to be fine. My girlfriend, she's allergic, right? So she's going to put that in her body and something's going to happen, right? Her Mm -hmm. throat's going to swell up or her face is going to swell up or she's going to go into anaphylactic shock or whatever it is Mm -hmm. that happens, but her body is going to react adversely to that. Mm. And that's, that's the same way for me, but with alcohol. So let's say we both order a glass of wine. My girlfriend's going to drink that wine and she's going to be fine. She's going to go on about her night and about her life. I'm going to drink that wine and it is going to start a very bad process of Mm -hmm. allergic reaction. And what's going to happen is that my body's going to react and the way it's going to react is it's going to want and need more. Mm -hmm. And that may not be that night. It may not be that morning. But what's going to happen is I'm going to go a week and I'm going to say, hey, it's been 16 years and I had a glass of wine and look, I didn't lose my job. I didn't lose my kids. I'm Mm -hmm. fine. So... Mm -hmm. I'm going to have another glass this this Friday. I'll have another one. And so I have another glass of wine and nothing happens and I'm fine. And I do that for a month. And then that mm-hmm. second month, I'm like, you know what? Maybe I could have two glasses. Life's fine. I'm fine. I can handle it. I can handle I've proven I can handle it. And that process is going to keep going until I'm like, yeah, maybe I could have a joint. Maybe my body can handle mm-hmm. one joint. And soon I'm going to be shooting oxy into my arm because mm-hmm. that's the way that my brain works. Whenever yeah. I put this in my body, I have to have more. And then a mental obsession kicks in. And I think about this thing and I, and I ruminate on it and I need it. And then also like there's this spiritual malady that I have mm-hmm. that if I don't have it, 
I'm restless, irritable, and discontent. And so when I finally learned that and like applied it to my life and started mm-hmm. thinking about the person that I'd been, and I and I realized that like it's not the drugs and alcohol, it's the laziness and the dishonesty and the selfishness mm-hmm. and the fear and all of these defects of character that I've been using drugs and alcohol to treat and to run away from. And it's these these feelings that I have been trying not to feel, right? Mm-hmm. And so it's funny because I, you know, I went on to, I stayed in Kerrville for a year. Um, I did everything they told me to do. And then I went back to UT. I got a 4.0. I, I did all mm-hmm. the things. What's interesting about my sobriety is that like, remember how I said like, I think a lot of people are worried about it not being fun. Yeah. I was literally the happiest that I'd ever been. And when I went back to school, I had a blast. And and I yeah. would not necessarily recommend the route I took, right? Because I, I don't know, <laughs> like I went out, I went to bars, like I went and had fun. I had people around me that I trusted, but I was like the DD, the permanent, <laughs> the permanent DD, you know, yeah. but I, I didn't allow it to stop me from having fun. Now, I don't think that's for everyone, right? Like, mm-hmm. I don't think you should get sober and go to the bar. But for me, like I got in a place where I was spiritually fit and where my recovery was very strong and I didn't allow my sobriety or my recovery to hold me back from things in life. And I think another thing for me was just that like I finally started feeling again. Like mm-hmm. I can remember Christmas morning that first year when I was sober and just being around my family and thinking like, wow, this is what actual non-artificial dopamine feels like. Like this mm-hmm. is, I feel like I'm a kid again because I hadn't felt in so long. And I think a lot of people, even, even people that aren't addicts or alcoholics, They go through life and they kind of maybe overindulge in some of this stuff. They're missing out on a lot of that natural, genuine joy. And that's what I learned, you know, when I got sober. My life is is incredibly fun. And like I talk about people ask me, like, don't you ever wish you were normal? And I'm just like, first of all, (laughs) what's normal? Yeah. I don't don't even know. I don't even know what normal is. And second of all, no. Like I'm so I'm so glad that I am the way that I am. Um, because it it, it actually it takes a lot of uh pressure off of me like I, I see my friends even today and I'm an older guy now but like I see friends that are still kind of going at it oh, yeah. in, or at weddings or at you know guys trips or whatever and they're hung over and they're like dying the next morning and I'm just like you guys ready to go hit the gym or whatever and it, <laughs> it take like I can't imagine going through life putting that in my body and having to like deal with the consequences especially now being older and so it's like Right. Over time, like it's become like this investment almost. It's become this totally. thing where I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I did that when I was 20 hmm. because I haven't had to deal with it. And also like, I don't know, like I just feel like I have enough problems in my life as it is. I'm glad that I don't have to deal with the alcohol part of it. You know, the totally. drug part of it. I mean, there's so many pieces of this that I really resonate with. And I know, like you said, th- sometimes these, the stories of the before are really hard to talk about. And I really appreciate your candor and honesty and storytelling in that space because one of the things that we really focus on here is letting somebody else see themselves yeah. in a story that we share here. And yeah. I know there are so many things. I mean, this is a podcast so you can't see, but I have a whole page of notes that I made of little moments that resonated with me. And and you and I actually have a very different story, but also very similar in a lot of ways, like the ways that we got sober and the language we use and the, what it looks like now. Like 
we have a different story, but there's so many pieces of what you shared that I think are kind of universals for all of us yeah. who struggle with substances in one form or another. I know that that part's hard to talk about. So I really just want to take a moment to appreciate that. And I think that, well, you just celebrated 16 years. Is that correct? It is. Yeah. So that was in March. And last year, actually, I had started dating a a woman named Daniela after after I was on the show. And it's funny, I met her at one of Blake Hortzman's shows, who's also an alumni of the show. So actually, (laughs) the show actually brought me love. I mean, if we're we're being real, I fell in Mm -hmm. love because of it. But she threw me on my 15th sobriety date. She threw me a surprise party in San Diego with a lot of my hometown friends and my family and a lot of the guys from San Diego from the show. And it was just, it was insane. Like it was the best thing you could ever imagine. And like she got videos from people that have been a part of my life on my sobriety journey. And just like Mm. looking back on on all of it and the people that have been around me, it just reminded me like, the people that you put yourself around and like the support system that you either have organically through family and friends or that you build in the recovery community mm-hmm. is huge. And like, there are yeah. so many people that are like me and you out there. It's it's mm-hmm. uh, like the people that you meet in this program. It's so interesting because I, I remember I was a, I wasn't a great guy in high school. I was kind of a bully. I was a popular kid. I was a jock. And there were times when like I kind of joined in on the bullying just to join in on the bullying. And I remember just getting so humbled by this program. And during my time <laughs> in Kerrville, meeting so many people from different cultures and different walks of life, meeting people that were LGBTQ or meeting people that were not from where I was from or that, that yeah. didn't speak the same language as me or that didn't have any money or that didn't have the same belief system that I had. But having this thing that tied us together mm-hmm. made me, it softened my heart and it made me realize like how incredible people are. And like, mm-hmm. I can remember calling people from, it's almost like in Bill and Madison when the guy's calling people and <laughs> apologizing. I was, I was yeah. literally calling people from high school and saying, Hey, like, I'm so sorry for the way that I was when we were young because you're an incredible person. And I see that now. And like, I hope that you can find in your heart and some of these people that I'm really close with today. And, mm-hmm. and I think that's just. That's another important aspect of this is that recovery and the community of recovery introduced me to people and humans in a way that Mm -hmm. I'd never seen them before. And it showed me that we are all the same. Mm -hmm. We all have struggles. And a lot of the people in the recovery community, they're just so talented and they're so charismatic. (laughs) And I I feel like it's it's like this gene. I don't mean to put us all on a pedestal, but it's like... No, we're special. If you look at some (laughs) of the people in recovery, like celebs and like the artists and whatnot, I mean, you've got a pretty good list of of people. Um, Mm -hmm. and And I learned that, you know, I learned that over time. I think that that was one of the... My favorite things that you shared in your story is this idea of you didn't have an upbringing that was especially traumatic or had any sort of, there there weren't as many levers against you. And before we started recording, I shared with you, I'm from Katy, Texas, which is like objectively a a well-to-do suburb of Houston. And I had no background that would have indicated that this would be something that I would struggle with. And, and I think for a lot of people too, that's a barrier to accepting or deciding to make change. They're like, it is. well, I can't, I can't be like that person because I, you know, I had had a fine upbringing. I'm not living under a bridge. Like there are all of these 
these things that we can tell ourselves that we disqualify the way the substance is actually showing up in our lives because maybe it doesn't make sense or maybe it's not quote unquote as bad as we perceive addiction to be. And, And honestly, I actually had this conversation this morning with somebody about like, this doesn't discriminate. It's it's not something that gives a shit about what you majored in in college and how much money you have yeah. and what your parents were like and what clothes you wear. It doesn't care about that. And, and I think for a lot of people, it can be really frustrating that there isn't like one clear indicator of this person's going to become addicted to substances and this person's not. And I know I bargained and wrestled with that a lot myself of this, like, well, why me? This is really frustrating. Why me? And I have the same clarity of thought that you have six years later of, thank God it's my thing. Like what it has given me and what it has opened up for me has been something I could have never imagined. But this idea of like you in this halfway house in Kerrville, Texas, being around people you've never been around before and all having this one singular tie. For me, I view addiction as like the great equalizer. It's this thing that levels all of us and puts us on the same playing field. And and yeah. I think what I take from that though, is that like, I I really like your takeaway of like humans are amazing. People are amazing and we are vibrant and unique and diverse. And like, we're really not as different as we think we are because this one thing can level all of us, no matter what sort of protective factors we have. Absolutely. And and to talk about your, your idea of it, putting barriers, I really think, and I, we, we are doing a lot better job, but the recovery community in general and society, I think we do a poor job of like talking about this rock bottom thing where when I first got sober, like I can remember saying, well, I've never shot up. Mm -hmm. So like, I'm not an addict. And that's just such a it's such yeah. a silly thing. And like, I have parents, yeah. I have parents that call me or family members or whatever that call me um, on a weekly basis. And they say, Hey, like, I have this problem, my friend's wife or my, my, my son or however it is, they're doing this, this and this. Are they an addict? What should we do? Like, what do yeah. we do? Are they an alcoholic? And I think that we sometimes like, we really overanalyze that. And we're mm-hmm. looking for this like silver bullet definition of what an addict yes. or an alcoholic is. And at the end of the day, like, that's up to the person. And yep. and like, there's such a thing as someone that their scale of addiction and the effects that it has on them and whether or not they're an addict is way different mm. than mine. But at the end of mm-hmm. the day, like, if you're participating and doing something to your body, that is making your life unmanageable, and mm-hmm. you're, you're not happy with it, then it's not something you should be doing. Mm-hmm. If, if there is something that that you are doing that is taking away joy from you and it's it's becoming a priority over the things of the person that you want to be, then it's a problem, right? And so I, I think a lot of times it's something that we use to justify like not getting mm-hmm. help. Yeah. And and the the alcohol-free community and the sober community sober curious community has done a good job of saying, hey, look, look, you know, maybe you're not an addict, maybe you're not an alcoholic, <laughs> maybe you just think you're getting a little wild and maybe want to step back. Whatever the case may be, like, come join us. And I'd love that. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. there's, there's, I think there's a lot of, um, I don't know, argument from the true, the AA community that like some of this is not, you're either an addict or you're not, and you either yeah. do it or you don't. And it's like, for me, like, if we can get people to, to maybe just dip their toe into this lifestyle and understand mm-hmm. what it can feel like and what it can be like. Maybe half of those people are addicts and they end up getting sober. They end up throwing themselves into a program that gets them sober. And like, that's, that's Mm -hmm. a win for me. 
Like, so yeah. I love this. You know, there's a lot of people that are like, don't make a trend out of my disease. And I'm like, make a trend out of it. Like, I yeah. love it. I, I don't, you can make a trend. You can do a user generated content about it. You can, be an <laughs> you, in, you can do it. You can be an influencer. I love yeah. it. I, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I'm all for anything that supports yeah. this idea of like sobriety. So, mm. yeah, I think it's cool that we're getting better about the stigma. We're getting better about talking about it. I think one of the things you, you thank me for is like sharing my story and like, I will never, ever whisper my story. I mean, mm. I remember in interviews early on, like at, when I got out of UT, I told people right when I walked in the door, like, hey, I want you to know I'm a recovering addict. That's who I am. Because <laughs> like, if you don't, if you don't know that about me, that's, that's who I am. That's part of why I am the way I am and part of why you might want me as a person to join your mm-hmm. company. So I think it's, it's very important for people to hear these stories. And like when I was on the show, I, it wasn't mm-hmm. shown as much on the actual screen as it was afterward, but I was very vocal about that. And mm-hmm. uh, I, I tried that. I try every day. Like, I don't have a big platform. I don't really focus on that the way some others do. Yeah. But when I do, I, I try to use it for, for good, for the, for the idea of like spreading information about, about recovery and spreading mm-hmm. information about my story. Zach is someone that's in the franchise, Zach Clark, who's yeah. phenomenal. Um, and mm-hmm. he and I talk all the time and we've talked about like trying to get some stuff going around this, but do I think it. it's so important to be loud. Yeah you know, yes. about this, because there are people out there that are, they're scared and they don't yeah. know that there's a way out and they don't know how easy it is to actually get help and how fun mm-hmm. and amazing your life can still be if you do. And I think that that's, I, I mean, everything you just said is like my belief system around this in a nutshell of get loud, more ways to do this, destigmatizing it, calling it whatever you want to call it. Because my story was that I was a young mom who had postpartum depression and drank two bottles of wine on my couch every night and never had a quote unquote rock bottom and had terrible mental health and all of the things that come with drinking. But I didn't fit the perception of what I thought an alcoholic was or an addict was. And for me, the language around alcoholic was a barrier to entry but I just didn't see myself in any version of sobriety that I had seen publicly. And this was, when did I get sober? 2017. And so the sober influencer community or the sober curious community did not exist. And I never, there there just was no visual representation of somebody who I could resonate with, who I could see a version of sobriety through that made sense to me until there was one. And as soon as there was one, and as soon as there was one person talking about this in a way that made sense to my brain, it was my access point to being able to make the change that I desperately needed to make. Like yeah. in hindsight, I have every single marker of alcohol use disorder. Like I tick all the addiction boxes. There is no version of this. It's like very black and white for me, but I didn't have the ability to, like, I really wouldn't give myself the, I was never honest with myself about it. And yeah. because there was only one model of recovery that I had seen, I just didn't, it was like, A or B, I guess I'll take B. B kind of sucks too, but I'd rather do it than A. And now it's like we have A to Z, so many different access points for people to be well. And like, that's the end goal, right? Like be well. And you know what I, you know what I, one thing that, and I hate to like be someone that complains about things on social media and whatnot, but there's this idea 
and it's not quite as bad anymore. But I think you said, you know, you didn't have any of this, these avenues for help and these things that were speaking to you, but in a way where it could help you. But I think that what you probably did experience is this wine mommy culture, this oh, wine totally. mom, like yes. Wednesday wine down, this yeah. It's wine. When they wine, I wine. Like, yep, all of it. I like I, I see this stuff and like I see memes and like I try to not be like a curmudgeon. Oh, I'm a total curmudgeon. But also I, I I've well, I've helped so many like I've helped yeah. and, and like intervened on so many like struggling mothers Moms. and so yeah. many struggling like or middle aged women or whatever it may yes. be that like I think have fallen into this trap where society has told them this is normal. And like, this is, this is how you deal with being a hardworking mom. And I'll be the first to tell you, like, I haven't had to do it, but I have seen what it is like to be a stay at home mom. And like, Mm -hmm. it is a job I could never do. I could never, ever, ever do it. And like the amount of stress and like the whole, Mm -hmm. the postpartum thing, like I obviously have never gone through it, but I know that it's a very real thing. And so it's like, I hate seeing society like truly enable this. And I love that Mm -hmm. we're finally like the other shoe is in a positive way dropping where we're saying like, Hey, like you don't need that. You could do this Mm. instead. And I love that we're finally like giving, giving help to the people that are just kind of wondering, could this be me or not? You know? Yeah, totally. I'm really glad you brought that up though, because that was absolutely the, it was like back in like the days that Facebook was still used and it was really before we got on Instagram and the mommy wine culture was everywhere. And I remember being in this time of my life where I was young. I was, I think I was 25 when I had my kid. I was obviously dealing with the postpartum thing, which was never diagnosed, but I was a stay-at-home mom and I was isolated and I didn't have any friends who had kids. And I had this like baby that I didn't know what to do with. And I thought that my whole life was going to be defined by motherhood in like this beautiful way. And it didn't turn out like I wanted it to. And there was this sense of community that I found In this idea of mommy wine culture, in this idea of like, oh, she gets it. She's going through the same thing I'm doing. And like, we can do this together. And then it's this like very insidious idea of connection and of relief. Uh, Obviously, like it it was a coping mechanism for me at this time too, because I had so many things that were not being addressed. I, I mean, since then, I've really come to identify like mothers, specifically young mothers or mothers with small children or stay at home moms. Like there's an entire group of people that have been overlooked. And as you said, we're starting yeah. to unveil this group of people who are really susceptible to addiction and really susceptible to using these substances in maladaptive ways. And it's incredibly normalized. And we're like making this whole culture around cutesy onesies and like mugs that have like, this yeah. might be coffee or this might be vodka, like all of this. I hate, oh, I cringe so bad when I see it. It's so bad. It's so bad. And it's kind of like the matrix. It's like when you're in it, you're like, this is fun. This is cool. And then you step out of it and you're like, oh no, what are we all doing? Well, and the travesty of it is that like the camaraderie aspect of that is so real. And like, without the wine, like that camaraderie, you need that. You need the group of moms that you go to the park with. You need the group of moms that you gossip with a little bit. You need the group of moms that you like commiserate Mm -hmm. with around how lazy your husband is, whatever it is, (laughs) right? Like I I get that. And like, that is where the relief should be coming, right? And it's, Mm -hmm. I think that like, as we get into this, like alcohol free era and, and like sober curious era, it, 
I'm hoping that like we have that same camaraderie, but it's based around the idea that we're in this healthy lifestyle and like we're yeah. not adding to the problem, right? By mm-hmm. having to cope with this by using the uh, the, the alcohol or whatever it may be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't love speaking about it from that standpoint because I'm not a mom, so like I can't really I can't tell moms what to do or how to deal with their stuff because I haven't been through it. But like I do know that I understand the idea of seeking others that are going through mm-hmm. things and like. Yeah almost commiserating in this thing and Mm -hmm. then justifying it because there's this groupthink approach. And I'm hoping that we're going to the other side where the groupthink is a healthy groupthink. I actually love when non-moms, if you will, um, talk about this because uh, it's one of those things. It's like, we're all over here, like raising our hands, like, help me, help me, help me. We're drowning. And everyone's like, you're so strong. But when people who are not the ones that are drowning are saying, hey guys, there's a problem over there. This is not okay. These people will need help. These people are unwell. Like maybe we should do something. It's almost, it's, it's in a way just as compelling, I think, to the broader conversation around this. I've had friends who are like, I don't have kids, but the way you talk about mommy wine culture has really made me notice like baby showers or like, I actually realized like my mom friend is not okay. And like, I think that I wouldn't have noticed this if you hadn't mentioned it. And I think it's just as important for people who are not in it to be able to say, Hey, this is a thing. This is what this is yielding and this is how it's harming people. Um, so like, let's all just be more aware of this and more present and like you're a parent too. So I know, <laughs> I know you have not escaped yeah. any of this. And, and I think it's no. just the more people talking about it and even understanding that like this is an entire vulnerable population that we really do a poor job of caring for anyway. And they're all falling into this trap of mommy wine culture like the more the more we talk about it the more more change is available and on a greater scale the idea of the stigma in itself like i know that in the workplace like it's i work for a really large firm and one Mm -hmm. of the first things my firm did i remember within four months of me being there i was approached to tell my story as a Mm -hmm. part of a mental health awareness thing and like the idea that they wanted me to do that and the feedback that I got. I mean, I got mm. so many like te- Teams messages from moms, from people mm-hmm. that were like, um, what do I do? What are my resources? And the idea that a company is now like saying, hey, like, let's talk about this. Mm-hmm. This is why we have resources. This is why we offer therapy. Addiction is a thing. And it probably mm-hmm. touches every single one of you in a, in a way. Like, so I think that, yes, like there are these groups that we need to be paying attention to, but also as a generation, yeah. like the people like you and me have to continue to like eliminate that stigma and like get people talking about this thing as if it's not like the elephant in the room, right? Because yeah. it's, I mean, it is an elephant in every room, but it shouldn't right. be hidden. It should be like, let's figure this out as a society. I would love to hear more about what you shared about how you step into rooms like even an interview room and say, hey, I'm a recovering addict. Because I think that that's something that might terrify a lot of people. But also, I think there's the mental shift of moving from feeling like this is a detriment to us and our past history with addiction or the fact that we experienced addiction at all is 
a detriment in moving it into like this strengths-based approach of that you want me on your team because I did this, yeah. because I overcame this. I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. So I, I think for me, like I have an approach towards recovery and everything really that I have to practice what I preach and I have to mm-hmm. stand by my product and my brand. And like, <laughs> I believe that addicts and recovering addicts are just as capable, if not much more capable yeah. than anyone else and any other type of person. I think that folks that are neuro divergent are just Mm -hmm. as capable, if not more capable than a lot of people Mm -hmm. in companies and that are coming to things like interviews. And so for me, like, if I'm going to go into an interview, and I'm going to hide this thing about myself, what that tells me is that I'm, there's a lack of confidence in that. Mm -hmm. And there's something then in my subconscious that's saying, because I went through this, I'm not good enough to be working for you. And at the end of the day, like, who I am, is someone that has been through a huge struggle, a near fatal struggle Mm -hmm. that I worked my way through. And I have come back and fought back and made this comeback into where I am now. I'm like, for me, like, that's my comeback story. Like, that's what Mm -hmm. shows that I have resilience. That's what shows that I won't give up. It shows that I can deal with tough situations that I've been through a lot that I have experience. And so like, for me, if you don't want to hire me Mm -hmm. because of that, then I don't want to be working for you. If if Mm -hmm. you hear from a candidate, that they are in recovery and that makes you scared, that's okay. I respect that. Totally respect that. But what that tells me, if you hear that and that tells you that you don't want that person working for you, I don't want to work for you either. And it's the same reason that when I was dating. Yes. the date. I was just about to make that dating comparison. I'm very, very upfront. I mean, I think the first thing that I told, you know, my ex-wife, when I met her, the first thing I told her was this. When I was dating post-marriage, after I got off the show, like I would always put in on Hinge and on the apps, like I don't drink. And like, that was always... It's a hard conversation to have, right? And and like yeah. a lot of times you feel like maybe, oh, maybe I'm kind of I'm missing out on something. But at the end of the day, like that's who I am. I remember like telling that to my now like serious girlfriend the night I met her. For her, like she heard that and was like, oh, like that was like such a green flag for her. And so for me, if I tell someone, hey, I don't drink and they're like, oh, one of those guys, we're not a match. Red flag. Yeah, red flag. You know, it's like we're not we're, we're not a fit. Like if, you, if, mm-hmm. if, if that's a drag to you, if that's something that you feel is going to maybe bring you down or it's going to cause maybe some obstacles, then that's fine. But if, and it's the same way with companies. It's like, yeah. if you question this thing that I've been through and you question my ability because I've been through it, that we were not a match. I don't want to work for your company. And a lot of companies, most companies have come around to, I mean, yeah. for a lot of fo- folks, it, it is a green flag in the workplace. Now, mm-hmm. there's, there's obviously like a scale here, right? <laughs> if, you got re- if you got out of rehab 30 days ago, yeah. And and you're interviewing for some high powered consultant job, like yeah, yeah. maybe don't be like I just got out of Betty Ford Clinic, like I'm good though. <laughs> like just make sure there's no alcohol at the Christmas party. Like yeah. you gotta be, you know. There's I think there's there's obviously some asterisks there, but like at the end of the day, for me, I own my recovery. Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid to talk about it, almost to the point of probably being a little bit annoying, like the vegan guy <laughs> or the CrossFit guy that's like, hey. Yeah, yeah. I do CrossFit, you know, it, but hey, I don't for drink. me, it's yeah. also, it, yeah, it's, it's, I try not to be that guy, but at the same time, like I want people to, the more people that are out there talking about this and shouting it from the rooftop, the more that we can slowly chip away at that stigma. And I also do it like for me, it's kind of a personal boundary thing because mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm around like 
new people, I don't know what they're capable of. If I'm at a house mm. party in Austin and there's a plate of brownies, mm. they could be yeah. brownies. And like, right. if I've come to the party and been like, oh yeah, that's fun, are you sober or whatever? Like they might be like, oh fuck, hide the weed brownies. Like, but yeah. if I don't yeah. say that and then they think everyone there's a stoner and then I eat a brownie, totally. that's going to be a problem for me. Now, luckily like, yeah. I have a whole new, a whole nother set of boundaries where like, it's such a weird thing. I won't eat a brownie. Like I will not eat a foreign <laughs> brownie unless I've cooked it. I, I will eat you know there's be like, so many more things that weed can be in, right? <laughs> I know. Well, so you can see, you can tell I've been sober for 16 years yeah. because like, I'm I'm such an old stoner that I think brownies are the only edible. Just the brownies. Yeah. yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I, I know. Like, but I, I think that's another reason that I'm really loud about it is that like, yeah. I want everyone to know that's my situation because like mm. it's also a safety thing i have allergic yeah. to opiates on my little medical tag because if i get mm. in a car wreck and yeah. i wake up on morphine i'm gonna be livid so mm. i am allergic so they can't put me on opiates so like there's a whole set of things that i practice and like i think that's another big thing for me especially for those that aren't sober sober curious but that are like real addicts or true mm. addicts or whatever you want to call it or alcoholics is that for me like this is a lifelong journey. Like this is a lifelong thing. I consider myself recovered, but I do not consider myself cured. And I know that like right. it could come back at any time. And it's it's kind of like when I'm talking to folks that are newcomers or that are trying to learn about recovery, I, I, I liken it to antibiotics, right? When you go to the doctor and they they give you antibiotics and they're like, look, I'm giving you 14 days of antibiotics. Now I get it. You're going to feel better after three. Keep mm. taking the antibiotic because the reason is because those antibiotics are still going to be working and you may not see the symptoms or feel the symptoms, but that sickness is not gone yet. And so you still need to be combating it. So for me, like recovery isn't, and it's not a 14 day thing. It's a forever thing because even yeah. though my disease, like I don't walk by the HEB pharmacy and think, oh my gosh, I could jump this and drink that cough syrup and yeah. get high. I don't do that anymore, but I still have these tendencies that are hiding inside of me that are my disease and it's waiting. Mm right? It's sitting mm. there waiting. And so I've got to always be fighting that disease, whether that's through helping other people or going to meetings or spreading awareness or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. So it's, it is a lifelong thing. And I, I think that once you realize that and you look at it as an opportunity instead mm -hmm. of like a chore, it really makes things a lot more enjoyable. Yeah. I mean, I resonate with that completely. And I don't call myself an alcoholic. Again, that was something that didn't resonate with me, but I absolutely recognize that I had alcohol use disorder and I feel recovered as you use that language. And I also am very aware that there is no situation in my life for the rest of my life in which alcohol has a place where it could yeah. be anything but utter destruction. And I really love some of the themes you touch on around this, around like freedom and how you have this rich, full life on the other side of it. Well, I'm about to go way over time. So <laughs> quick last question for you. With this idea of like, you have this serious history and you experienced this serious condition and it was something that took such a toll on your life. And we live in this society where so much of this is normalized and sobriety is stigmatized and all, all of these things at play, how do you make this joyful for your, yourself? And how do you, what does the freedom in that feel like? So I think that you really get a sense of the freedom of it if you've felt the prison side of it, right? So mm. if you felt the actual prison that is addiction and this thought that you have to wake up every morning 
And if you don't have a fix lined up and a second fix lined up, then you've got to figure out how to get money to get the first fix. And while you're doing that, you've got to also figure out how to get the second one. And if you don't, if you don't have this stuff lined up, you're literally going to be sick and you're (laughs) going to hallucinate and you're going to sweat and your skin's going to crawl. And all the while, this is all you're doing, right? And so you have all these other things in life that are screaming your name, like family and friends and school and work and the rest of your life. And like, normal life that's trying to pull you back and you don't care anything about any of that because you are trapped in this cycle of just trying to survive, just trying to get back to normal. And so today I go through my life and I have problems today. I have problems with, you know, my kids' school is calling because something happened or Mm -hmm. I've got to figure out a way to get one kid to this practice and one kid <laughs> here or um, Cat soccer practice. You know, my water bill was $500 because they re- misread the meter or like my friend is in the hospital and he's sick. And yeah. I have problems like a normal human being has problems. I have conflict. My life is not perfect. But today I'm able to handle those problems the way that I should be able to. And I'm able to at the same time be a contributing member of society, all the while not having to worry <laughs> about this this trap and this cycle of trying to medicate myself just yeah. to get by. The freedom really is the ability to live life on life's terms and mm. to live to live a, a normal life where you're not having to fight just to get by and you're not mm. existing and surviving, you're actually living. And I think like when you've actually lived the, like I said, the locked up prison side of it, that is addiction, that's when you can really feel the freedom. Mm. There's so much gratitude that even I, like I'm very guilty of not, not having the gratitude I should. You know, because like every day that I'm alive is absolutely, and it sounds so cliche, but it's such a blessing because like I OD, I Mm. almost went to prison. Like I would have just gotten out of prison last year on parole if things Mm. would have happened the way they were supposed to. And like, so for me, like every day that I wake up and I'm not covered up or locked up is an absolute blessing. So that, Mm. that freedom, like for me, I've really been just like forced into a state of just like reasonableness when it comes to freedom because like (laughs) I've been given such an ultimate second, third, fourth, fifth chance here. I don't always do a great job of showing it, but I have so many things that I should and am grateful for. Hmm. I love that. And and I in my brain, I can even correlate that with the idea for folks who are sober curious too, of maybe it's not first fix, second fix, but it is when's my next drink? Am I going to drink XYZ at the party on Friday? Like even that, that is like mental prison. Thinking about that, having a hangover, recovering from it, like the amount of mental gymnastics that goes into continuing to use a substance. All the justifying that you do, all the deal making you do in your head where you're saying, well, I'll just have one tonight and then I'll only have three tomorrow or whatever it is. It's Yeah, Yeah, it's incredible that I think it's important to understand when you hear a story, even like mine, you got to fill in the blanks and you got to make it your own because at the end of the day, like we're all dealing with the same thing. It's just a different substance or at a different level. Yeah. Right. Right. And and yeah, different substance, different level, different period of time along the timeline. Mm -hmm. And 
when you talk about the freedom, I really resonate with this idea of like, I don't think about it anymore. That's freedom. Yeah, it really is. The mental energy that I don't have to waste on it anymore. And like the literal time freedom, emotional freedom, like that is what is so powerful. And I hear in your story too, of like, you are not, no longer beholden to this and you have freedom. They talk about the, in the program, they talk about the mental obsession being removed at a certain point. And mm-hmm. You know, it's funny because I have alcohol in my home. I have a bar. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people, not as much anymore, but people would come in and be like, you have alcohol here? And it's like, (laughs) I always ask them like, well, do you have pineapple juice at your house? And they're like... I don't know, maybe. And I'm like, well, same thing for me. I don't don't know if I have whiskey or gin or whatever's up there, but it's up there for whoever likes that. I don't, I don't think about it. It's not something I'm interested in. And so it's the same way that mental obsession has, has been removed. Yeah, I get it. I, my fridge in my pantry, my husband still drinks, so it's there. And I'm like, I couldn't tell you right now what we have. Yeah. Um, I know it's all gross is what I know. So it's not a problem (laughs) for me. This has been really, really incredible. And I feel like this, I, I'm not just saying this to blow smoke up your ass, but this has been one of my favorite conversations to date. And I have one question for you that I ask every episode. And that is, if your story were to be written into a book, what would it be titled and why? It would be, I bet on you now. Mm. And the reason is because I, I got a call in 2006 from my grandfather, who is the my papa is like the, probably the, the most salt of the earth person in the world, the best man that I <laughs> know, incredible human being, and such a huge influence on my life. And I remember him calling me almost, it was like my family's like last ditch effort as a way to try to get me to stop as if mm-hmm. I had control. And I remember him saying to me, son, I know that you keep saying that you're going to stop doing these things and hurting us, but actions speak more than words. And I'll be honest, right now, I wouldn't bet on you. Mm. And he hung up, he hung up on me. And I can remember like, normally I didn't take anything like, like that to heart at that period of time, because I didn't care. But that just hit me like a ton of bricks. Now, granted, I didn't do anything about it at that time. But I remember I, I got sober, you know, a year later. And I remember in 2008, my grandfather called me and and, you know, it was a normal conversation. And, and he said, Hunter, I wanted to tell you, it's been a year now and you've really done some incredible things and you're making us so proud and you've completely turned your life around. And I never thought you could do it. And I want you to know I bet on you now. And, you know, it's incredible that just things like that can, how they can affect you, you know, and resonate with you. So that would be the, the title for sure. Mm. I love it. And I expect that to be on bookshelves someday so I can read it and share it with our community. (laughs) Yeah, hopefully so. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for your story and for your candor and for being a person, we didn't even get to it, but being a person who talks about sobriety on a massive national syndicated show that millions of people see and are impacted by. I know our community will want to connect with you if they want to connect with you. If you and Zach have anything in the works, where can they find you and what's going on in your world? Yeah, I'm on I'm on Instagram, H Montgomery. I'm on TikTok, H Montgomery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm okay. not as as big as I used to be on those, but I'm there. I'm sure you You're can there. find me. But 
anything anything anyone ever needs, reach out. I'm always here to help the community from a recovery standpoint, and I'm happy to help anyone that's ever in need. And yeah, hopefully Zach and I will will get something started on a, on a more yeah. public front. Keep me looped in on that because I think that, that that's got a lot of potential. I love Zach's work as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Hunter. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thank you so much for listening to Sober Stories with me, Beth Bowen, and our guest, Hunter Montgomery. I look forward to you, no doubt, reading Hunter's book someday, and I want you to know that I bet on you too. Don't forget to hop on our community waitlist by heading over to wearesoberstories.com slash community. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean the world to us if you took a second to rate and review Sober Stories wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us tell more stories and change more lives one killer review at a time. And if you had a big aha moment from today's show, we'd love it if you share with us on social media. You can find us at We Are Sober Stories on most platforms. Tag us so we can hear your biggest takeaways. And hey, you never know when we'll send a little thank you. I also want to thank our team here at Sober Stories. Callie Williams and Zach Kiniston on editing. They also have their very own podcast, Switchcraft, Battling a Bulky Backlog, where they play over 180 Nintendo Switch titles. Check them out. Daniela Marty for our graphic design and every single person who has a hand in what we're building. Until next week, my friends. Thank you.